Very good evening to you all. Uh, welcome to this, which is uh, the first in a series of events called LSE Works. Um, Stuart Corbridge, I think, is the initiator of these. Sadly, he can't be with us this evening. Uh, but this is intended to be an effort to showcase LSE research and LSE research centres, uh, both to the school and beyond. And uh, thank you for coming. Uh, great turnout for the beginning of such an event. And it will provide an opportunity for LSE academics to present research findings and both LSE people and distinguished outsiders then to comment on what they've heard. The events are sponsored by Sage Publications, for whom uh, heaven be thanked. Thank you, Sage. And uh, I should add now, because I'll forget at the end, the second one, so do come again, is on the 17th of February on the related and interesting subject of where is growth going to come from, and that is our, the, the, the key speaker then is, is Professor John Van Rienen, same time, same place. Now, uh, tonight's uh, key speaker is Professor Henry Overman from the Department of Geography and Environment, but also of the Spatial Economics Research Centre. This evening's event is partly theirs, partly LSE London. Ian Gordon, Professor Ian Gordon, is uh, located in both those places and the Department of Geography and the Environment. And we have Henry is going to give what is, in effect, his inaugural lecture. Professor of Economic Geography, for which congratulations. And then we will have three commentators, Ian Gordon, Hamish McRae, who is Associate Editor of The Independent, and Alexandra Jones, who is Director of the Centre for Cities, and they'll come up and speak after Henry. The title of this evening's event is, I think it's Did London Get Away With It? I haven't actually got the title here, which is not good, is it? It's that. And... All I'll say by way of introduction is that this is a, a fascinating subject. London, after all, and the wider London region, London, the East and the Southeast, what Ian would call the Greater Southeast, is an incredibly important part of the UK economy. It had an evolved, very carefully articulated and evolved self-image and a reality of a of an economy driven by financial and business services at the core of a British economy that was well and truly post-industrial, that had been heavily developed by policymakers at national and uh, London-wide level. And therefore, because it was significantly dependent in image and to some extent in, re on reality, in reality on financial and business services, a banking crisis clearly struck at the heart of that image and indeed at the heart of that economy, or did it? That's what we're going to find out. That occurred from the end of 2007 through 2008 and indeed into 2009. So what this evening is about is really to allow Henry to give us the benefits of his research on this important question of, in effect, did London get away with it, it being the outfall of the extraordinary banking crisis and the recession that followed it. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Henry Overman. Am I 
just close down all of the advertising that we seem to have uh, going on and actually open up the business. Um, let, me, uh, let me start by correcting Tony, uh, only on something trivial, which is the, the title. Uh, I will uh, be talking about how did London get away with it, the recession and the north-south divide. Uh, I, I should thank Ian Gordon uh, as a start, uh, starter for the title. Uh, I, I won't thank him for the fact that we came up with a title before we looked at the numbers, which is uh, why we will actually spend uh, quite a lot of time on, on the thing that, that Tony said, whether, whether London did actually get away with it, which turns out to be far, far harder to prove. Uh, I should thank uh, Max Nathan and Julia Faggio uh, for helping me uh, try and... Uh, puzzled out what's going on. I thank the panel in advance. I think it's always better to thank people who are going to follow you in case you fundamentally disagree with them uh, and uh, don't wish to speak to them afterwards. Uh, and I thank all of you for coming. So um, London won't get away with it. Let's start here. I mean, the last uh, time that someone spoke on the recession uh, at the LSE, uh, some of you will know uh, that uh, the speaker had a much harder time of it. Uh, because the, the Queen, who was opening the new academic building at the time, uh, asked why did no one see it coming. And now if you read the popular press, uh, you would think that Howard Davis' response as, uh, as a good sort of macro-type person was something uh, along the lines of this. Uh, you'll, be pleased to, you'll be pleased to know that, uh, that that's the last uh, formula that, uh, that you're going to see this evening. And I'm not going to be talking about why no one saw it coming. I instead uh, am going to be talking about why uh, we got it so wrong uh, in terms of where we thought the impact would be. So uh, here are some uh, headlines picked from 2007-2008. Uh, the first one is from Business Week, and then uh, blue is the Guardian, pink is the FT, and nothing is the BBC. Um, so. If you look here, uh, credit crunch will squeeze London, dark underbelly of London's boom, tough year for London coming up. This time round, we're all in it together. Uh, one of my favourites from the Observer, it's Grim Down South, which the FT appears to have copied a day later. Uh, recession Britain, Grim Down South. London worst hit in a recession, uh, one which I particularly like, although I, I must confess, not, I haven't had time to go back and see if this was true, but apparently Corby. Uh, it was best place to ride out the recession. Uh, maybe Alex will be able to tell us whether her city's outlook uh, stuff is saying this. And then uh, the, the panic sets in and we have five city groups set up to advise Darling on, on what on earth to do about London. So thing, people thought that the newspapers thought things were going to be bad uh, for London. Uh, here's the Daily Mail. Uh, let's have it in a picture. Uh, you know, if you look at this, uh, it's hard to see because of more advertising. Uh, if you look at this thing here, uh, London uh, is, uh, is, is sort of seen as going to be terribly badly hit by the recession. Uh, and the headline was the recession map of England, London southeast to lose one in 12 jobs over the next 18 months. Now, uh, people in this room weren't immune to this. Uh, here's Professor uh, Ian Gordon, my distinguished uh, colleague. Overall, if these two, credit crunch and commodity price shocks, uh, lead to a, a dip in output growth, actually, Ian, was the, rather, the thing I took out uh, and left you predicting the recession, at least. The impact on output and employment levels in London can be expected to be disproportionately strong. Uh, you'll see where this is going. Here's uh, Alex's organisation, the Centre for Cities. 
The immediate effects of the recession are being felt most heavily in Greater London, which has had a disproportionate share of jobs in financial services, construction and retail over the last decade. Air of caution, good, good practice, but it's not necessarily grim down south. Uh, here's Hamish's newspaper, not Hamish, I should hasten to add. In the 1980s slump, the North suffered. In the 1990s downturn, the home counties, this time the misery may be more evenly spread geographically. It will probably be the most white-collar recession in history. Uh, and here's me uh, getting it wrong as well, just uh, so that I'm not picking on any uh, one individual. Conventional wisdom suggests that recessions tend to spread misery around. If this is true, we might expect the North-South divide to narrow over the coming months, particularly if sectors overrepresented in the South, e.g. financial services, are especially hard to hit. You will see that I was uh, sticking to the strict conventions of academia and not really making anything other than a completely hedged prediction. Um, so let me uh, try and tell the story about did London get away with it, and then we'll switch to talking about how London got away with it. Uh, this, this is where things uh, became unstuck for me fairly early on in trying, trying to get a, at this. I, I think London did get away with it, although the, the regional data in the United Kingdom, as Ian and uh, I both feel, is, is really rather poor uh, and makes it rather difficult to figure these kind of things out. So let me give you the boring statistical stuff and then we'll come back and look at some more fun things. Um, this is what happened to labour market in GDP, and here I've just done London uh, compared to the rest of the UK. If you take the peak to trough change in output, so you know right from the very top of the boom right down to the bottom, a, par a point which we're already past, London's GDP fell 5.3% compared to the UK's, which fell 6.2%. Uh, London did better on the claimant count, peak to trough. Uh, and it did better on the change in employee jobs. So employee jobs fell 2.6% in London, 3.9% in the United Kingdom. Uh, if you want to do it on a, rather than comparing to the UK, if you want to look at the, the regional performance, uh, the latest GVA data, the, the latest output data that we have for the 2008-2009 shows uh, a fall in output for London of about 2.5%. Now, uh, the northwest and northeast uh, the, did actually slightly better on that metric. They saw a fall in their output of 2%, 2008, 2009. However, London had grown 4% in the 2007-2008 period uh, compared to performance under 2% in the north and northeast. So if you take the, the period as a whole, uh, London does better uh, than any other region in the UK. Um, now, when, one of the things we were commenting on uh, just outside before coming in was that the data, this is one of those situations where those GDP and labour market data don't quite give you uh, the whole story because London feels like it's got away with it. Okay? I mean, uh, as you travel around the country, this is something that, that you know, I keep sort of getting from people is that uh, actually sort of the South feels like, uh, like we've done relatively okay. Uh, so here, I think, is probably part of what's going on. I mean, so, you know, if you look at the percentage change in house prices, I mean, we, for those of you who are not British, uh, I'm assuming you're studying here and you've become familiar with how obsessed the British are with housing. Uh, so here's what happened to the percentage change in house prices. Now, London uh, here saw, uh, this is Q108 to Q32, the first part of 2008 to the last part of 2010. London saw prices rise in this period, and everywhere else in the United Kingdom saw prices fall. And actually, this comparison 
that I'm doing here works against London because prices in the rest of the country had actually already started falling when I, when I, in 2008. Uh, in Yorkshire, prices fell by about 6%, uh, northeast, northwest, around 5%, uh, 3% in the Midlands, uh, and then the southeast, you get about a 1.2% fall. So, you know, on the thing that, that many people talk about at dinner parties, uh, you know, you're, you're going to your dinner party and you're talking about your capital gains for the period. Uh, everyone outside of London is terribly miserable. Okay. Here, uh, sort of to get away from uh, house prices, is something on prime office rents. I, I took this from a, a Cushman and Wakeman market beat data report. So this is September 10, uh, 2010, and it's looking back over the five-year figures and the one-year figures. Uh, I mean, you, what you notice is that I mean, the five-year figures for the four cities sort of on the, the left-hand side of this, which are broadly in the south, the five-year figures are better than for the four cities on this side, uh, who are, uh, broadly speaking, in the Midlands and the north. Uh, but the one-year figures are hugely better for uh, the city in the West End. Okay. Now that might well be actually because they'd hammered down further uh, at, the, uh, at the point uh, where the one-year thing was taken. But it still gives you a feeling for the fact that it, it prime office rents were getting away with it. Here, for those of you who uh, don't uh, like economics, is something cultural. Uh, I, I have to confess I can't get these figures for the rest of the UK. Perhaps they exist, but I haven't been able to, to, to get at them. And I suppose that the London snob would say that there is no theatre outside of London. Um, uh, uh, I don't go to the theatre, so I feel perfectly comfortable remaining neutral on this. Uh, so here is theatre box office, millions of pounds, and what you see here is, I mean, there's just growth throughout this period. Okay. Now, uh, of course, you might object, oh, well, that's being propped up by tourism, etc., etc. Um, so it's not really picking up what's going on with uh, domestic incomes. So here is something I care about. Uh, this is uh, Premier League, average Premier League uh, football attendances. Uh, and uh, the, the stand-up, if you've got a job, is a reference to what the Chelsea fans uh, used to chant at Liverpool fans uh, whenever they uh, visited Stamford Bridge, uh, confirming them as the, the nastiest uh, team in the Premiership. Uh, so this just shows what happened uh, to average Premier League uh, crowds between 2007 and 2010. You see that the South uh, basically is static, uh, the North uh, and the Midlands both experiencing large falls. I should say that I took out all the fair weather supporters at Manchester City who have uh, only joined since uh, the club suddenly came into a lot of money. Uh, but even without that, uh, you see uh, the North and the Midlands uh, faring much worse. Um, here, uh, this, uh, thanks to uh, Susanna and, and George in my department for this, here is uh, their the rather lovely mappiness. Uh, if any of you are interested in the mappiness project, uh, just Google it and you'll see. But this basically is, is an app on your uh, phone which pings you several times a day and asks whether you're feeling happy or sad and to rate it on a, on a, on a, on a scale. Uh, I don't know that I really pick out much of a... London's the blue here. That's what the London blues is, is trying to remind me. Uh, and uh, you'll see that we have better nightlife uh, because uh, Saturday is here. The, the blue is distinctly above the green, which is the rest of the United Kingdom. Uh, better nightlife Sunday, 
and then for some reason we're, we're terribly down by Tuesdays. Okay. Um, but uh, broadly speaking, you know, I don't see some huge difference here that suggests that, oh, it's all doom and gloom in the South and things have gone uh, really bad for us. So, you know, I think that the evidence suggests that London did get away with it. I think in an absolute sense it suggests it get away with it. Uh, certainly in a relative sense, relative to predictions, uh, people were predicting that London would be particularly badly hit, uh, and it clearly hasn't been relative to the rest of the United Kingdom. So let's try and uh, unpick how, uh, how this happened. So uh, on to the next part. How did London get away with it? I'm a big believer in the fact that composition explains a lot of what goes on in terms of differences across the United Kingdom. I mean, to my mind, places with medium to high-skilled workers tend to do well because medium to high-skilled workers do well, and places with lots of uh, lower-skilled workers do badly because lower-skilled workers are doing badly uh, at the moment. And actually, it turns out that this, is a, once again, is an important part of the story when you look at what has happened in the recession, because despite all the predictions to the country, this generally has not been a middle-class recession. So uh, here I have plotted the uh, percentage change in employment between 2007 and 2010 uh, from the Labour Force survey. So this is the UK percentage change in employment. And what you see is that professional employment during that period is actually up. So this is professional and managerial, the stuff that I'm guessing 90% of the people in this room will go into. Ad our administrators uh, and wholesale trades, retail trades have not done well, they're down. But the people who serve us have done perfectly well. So personal services is here. And then it's very bad to be in a basic job, and this is where many of the manufacturing jobs are. Okay, so I, basically what's happened is that the middle class and their help have got away with it and uh, their administrators and the people that make things for them, well actually the Chinese make things for us, it's probably part of the problem, but uh, the UK people who make things for us have done rather badly. Okay. Now, how does that help London? Well, how that helps London, for those of you who aren't aware of it, is because, of course, those the profession, the thing that's done particularly well, those professional things, account for a much larger share of our labour force. Okay, so the blue things on the left here are the north, the burgundy things in the the middle of the Midlands, uh, and then the yellow things the south. And what you see here is that we're just disproportionately represented in professional. We're slightly underrepresented in trade. We're slightly underrepresented in service and we're very underrepresented in basic. But if you go back to that, you look at what's done well, we're overrepresented in the thing that's done best. Okay? Uh, now, that's actually not the end of the story. So there's a compositional thing where the professional and service occupations have done better and London is disproportionately uh, made up of people in the professional and managerial classes. But then even within those classes, we have done better. Okay, so this is breaking it down. Uh, so uh, again, you've got the UK on the left-hand side, and then you've got what happened in terms of the percentage change in employment for the North, the Midlands, the South. And what you see actually for all of the all of the professions except the very lowest, people in London did better. Okay, so actually our increase in professional employment was larger than for the UK, larger than for any other region. Our uh, fall in administrative in trade was actually lower. Our uh, 
rise in service was higher. Uh, and it's only in the basic, very basic occupations that people do worse. Okay, so and this will be important because this will be the sort of final sting in the tail when we get to it. London's working poor haven't really got away with it very well. Okay, uh, I mean, if you were down in this group at this end living in London, uh, you have actually seen your employment prospects deteriorate faster than if you'd lived somewhere else. Okay, or at least if you'd lived in the north. I mean, the Midlands manufacturing jobs have been absolutely hammered in this. Okay, so. There's story one. It's not a middle class recession, and you know, London is a middle class sort of professional managerial city. What about, uh, I mean, sometimes when you see uh, commentators on this, you'd think that, that one of the reasons why uh, London got away with it is because of people like me, okay, uh, employed by the public sector, well paid, uh, in inverted commas. Uh, yeah, that was the inverted commas bit. Um, uh, no danger of being fired, although suddenly that part of the uh, social contract seems to be uh, uh, less true than it used to be, uh, and, and propping up the rest of the economy. Okay? I mean, I don't know why people would think that there's a socialist republic in London. I mean, pretty well everything goes against this. I mean, here is the share of public sector employment uh, as part of each region's employment, and you see that basically, I mean, the greater southeast, to use Ian's term, uh, is right down the bottom of this in terms of share of employment. So if the, if the fact that public sector employment has held up was explaining the performance of the regional economies, it would be explaining why the North East, North West, Yorkshire, West Midlands weren't doing as badly as we'd expected, not why London uh, is not doing as badly as we'd expected. Now, of course, you could object to this and say, well, but maybe it's about the change in jobs that we've seen. So what's gone on is that we have fired all of the low-end public sector workers who work in the north, and then all the high-end central civil servants uh, have been absolutely fine and dandy. Um, here is the change uh, in public sector employment in this period. This is tens of thousands between 2007 and 2010. Uh, you know, if you look at this, London uh, and the southeast and the east of England, which are the three we see here, I mean, they're not the ones that have been gaining employment in this period. It's, it's the northwest, northeast, and Yorkshire that have gained employment during this period. Now, something that, that is rather difficult here is that these numbers that I'm presenting to you include the banks. So I wrote to the Office for National Statistics and I asked a, well, I thought, not unreasonable question. Could you tell me, uh, when we bought out the banks and 220,000 workers shifted from the private sector to the public sector, where were they located? And the ONS uh, told me they could work that out, but I was the first person to ever ask this question and it would take them a month. Uh, now, given that I, I only asked them uh, yesterday, um, uh, I had to do something uh, which is a little bit more of an approximation. Uh, but it turns out that actually approximating this is not too difficult because the ONS does publish a series of statistics which tell you the employment of public sector institutions, which include the banks. And the banks all got changed in quarter four, 2008. And if you go and look at quarter four in 2008, lo and behold, 230,000 jobs got added to these things. And the ONS does break down where they went. Okay. So here I took out 
what happened because of that reclassification and looked at public sector employment. And there you see that um, public sector employment you know, outside of the banks, outside of this reclassification that occurred when we bailed out all of these jobs, actually fell in London and the southeast, and they experienced the largest falls. So I don't think that uh, public sector employment is not it. Okay, so now we get to the one that, of course, is most controversial and that I've just hinted at by that comparison that I did, greedy bankers and bailouts. Okay, uh, this, I'm sure, is, is the, is the cul culprit that, that most people uh, think is important. Now, um, I have to say that it's surprisingly difficult to get decent numbers on the direct cost of the bailout, just to give you some feeling for how much we're spending. And the reason why it's rather difficult is that every time you see someone reporting this in the press, uh, they tend to report things like the cost of the deposit guarantee. Well, I mean, you know, that's a, that's a big number. Right? So if you start lumping in all of the guarantees that we've put in place, but which may well not be called upon, the number gets up to something like 850 billion, which sounds like a colossal amount of money that we've spent uh, bailing things out. Uh, Bridget Rosewell uh, is the person that I stole these numbers from, and they seem to be much more uh, reasonable. August 2010, the financial intervention increased net borrowing by about £110 billion. Now, just as an aside, uh, not all of this is going to translate eventually into a cost for the taxpayer, because, of course, we got banks moved onto the government's balance sheet at the same time as spe sort of, uh, spending all of this money. Uh, and those, believe it or not, those banks are still worth something despite what has happened subsequently to the bailout. So the 70% of the RBS group is worth about 18 billion. Uh, our circa 40% of the Lloyds group is worth about 20 billion. Uh, no one's apparently dared value Northern Rock. Uh, ironically, the first to be bailed out in the north of the country. Uh, someone pointed out to me at some point that every single entity that had been bailed out uh, was headquartered outside of London uh, until Lloyd's foolishly took part of the bank that was located in Scotland onto its books and had to be bailed out. So, I mean, there is, there is something here funny going on about being headquartered outside of London. Um, but, of course, even if they're headquartered outside of London, they do employ a lot of people uh, in, the, in the London and the South East. And then we've got the Asset Protection Scheme, which is, is not a big issue, but is expected to bring back about £5 billion. So we've spent a lot of money bailing out the bankers. Um, now, these are the direct costs. So it seems to me that the best thing to do is take the direct costs and look at uh, what that might imply in terms of the jobs that we saw. So here, for those of you who couldn't get it from the thing I did just now, is the share of bailout jobs that I took away from public sector employment when I showed these pictures here. So we're reallocating about 220,000 jobs from uh, private sector banks to public sector financial institutions. If you want, you could think of that as the direct jobs saved by the bailout uh, and here is the distribution of those jobs based on what happened to the public sector employment numbers. And so you do see, I'm not actually, I have to confess, if, if someone uh, after the lecture can tell me what on earth is going on with the North West, 
Uh, I would be interested to know. This is not the BBC, by the way. I did, I did check that. The BBC doesn't really have anyone in the northwest yet because uh, they're all refusing to go. Um, but you do see that London and the South East got a larger share of those bailout jobs, right? So there is a sense in which the direct uh, cost of by shifting a whole load of people, you know, the, you could think of these jobs as having been protected by the bailout. Tony, actually, I've lost sight of the chair. Where are you, Tony? What, what time did I start? Excellent. 13 to go, fine. Um, here's the much more difficult thing, and I, I will confess to have not made as much mileage on this as I'd hoped. But the direct costs of the bailout are not the only benefit to the banking sector of the bailout. Uh, so uh, there's a piece by uh, Haldane, who's uh, the Bank of England, that looks at the value to the banks of the fact that the bailout made it much less like and other aspects of government policy made it much less likely that these banks would go out of business. In other words, it reduced the risk of lending to the banks. And the banks do a lot of borrowing. Okay? So reducing the risk of lending reduces the interest rate that they have to pay on their debt from what it otherwise would have been, and that reduces their costs. Now, Haldane gets at this by looking at the difference in the credit ratings that are being provided by the credit rating agencies between support and standalone. Now, this is probably not uh, a place to get into uh, whether or not you ever want to trust data from the credit uh, agencies. Okay, but taking that as face value, you can take the difference between what they're getting with support and the difference between what they're getting in standalone, and you get some idea of what the subsidies are. Okay. Now, the banks have always actually uh, received subsidies through this route because the, the government has always had a, an element of guaranteeing. Uh, so the, the government has always uh, provided a subsidy on this front. Um, but you get some idea of how much the subsidy has increased uh, when you see that in 2007... Uh, there was uh, 11 billion pounds. You want to come and press something? Well, don't press that. That would, that, that, that's where the, the visualizer thing is on. Fine. Uh, so, uh, 11 billion pounds in 2007, 59 billion pounds in 2008, 107 billion pounds in 2009. Okay? So, that is the implied extra subsidies as a result of uh, the reduction in credit risk. Um, now it's difficult to know but 93.5% of that goes to the big five, okay, the too big to fail crowd. Now you know this has two implications, I mean that's a very large subsidy going to the too big to fail. A reasonable amount of that is going to come out in remuneration, which is, of course, all of the arguments that are going on at the moment. Uh, and many of the relevant workers for whom this is an issue uh, are going to be concentrated uh, in the London labour market. Okay. Now, I was trying to get some way of uh, getting at this. It's, it's hard. I mean, what I've done in the end is just figure out what the value added is for financial 
services uh, in London and then compare that to the implicit subsidy that they are receiving. Um, so the implicit subsidy is, I don't know, somewhere, we, we're getting subsidies of about £107 billion. That's clearly not all going to London. Financial and business services account for uh, about 16% of London gross value added. London gross value added in 2008, that was the last time I had a, a number for it, was £265 billion. So, you know, £107 billion uh, implicit subsidy, you know, if some reasonable proportion of that comes uh, to London, it's a potentially very large impact. Okay, because uh, you know the, the GVA of financial services is about 42.4 billion pounds. Okay, and that's a much smaller, by the way, than the 59 billion pounds implicit subsidy that they were apparently receiving in 2008. So the bailout uh, matters a lot. Um, I, you know, it's hard to make any progress on how much uh, it's, it's uh, mattered. I will come back a little bit in the end to tell you what it's done to the wealthy. Okay? The other story uh, that you hear about London is the fact that the public sector has propped us up, not through public sector employment, but by the fact that we're digging some whopping great holes at the moment. Okay? For those of you that don't recognise it, the one on the northwest there is the uh, Olympic site, and the one down here is Crossware. Okay. The Olympic site employs about 10,000 construction workers. There are arguments, of course, about how many of those are poor Londoners. Uh, Crossrail is currently only employing about 2,000. So, the middle class uh, didn't get hit. Uh, the people that serve them, their help, didn't get hit. Uh, the banks have not got hit anywhere near as much as you'd expect. Uh, and we've had some help for the construction industry as a result of these large projects. Okay? So you can actually see this in the employment numbers for London. So here are uh, the employment numbers for London. Actually, yeah, you know what? I think it's going to be better here. Let's just come down. So, um, top is, so it's the share in 07 in the north. Here. The percentage change 07 to 10 here, share for the south, percentage change okay, in employment. Now we know manufacturing has been hard, hard hit, I showed you that manufacturing actually has been disproportionately badly hit in London, I said that earlier, it's down 27%, it's a tiny proportion of the, the London economy, so who cares, right? I mean, unless of course you work there, in which case it's a terribly bad thing for you. Construction, I think the thing to look at here is that it was, a, it was a larger proportion of what was going on in the uh, north, which is all of these government-funded regeneration projects, I'm assuming, um, but it fell far more than did uh, the south. And there's two reasons for this. Number one is that house prices have absolutely tanked through the floor in the north, so why the hell would you build a house? But the other is we've got the Olympics and Crossrail, so that's helped prop us up a bit. Accommodation is the bit that includes food, okay, so this is why it's still difficult to get a, a restaurant a table in London and not so hard in the north. I mean, employment fell 17% in northern accommodation and food, fell 11% in the south. Here are the professional services that we saw doing well, okay, this is the middle class, it fell 7% elsewhere in the north, it's risen 9% in London. 
And then here's the, you know, here's the, the bailout thing. I mean, one thing that's certainly going on is that the effect of the bailout does not seem to be equal everywhere. Okay? Um, because financial employment in the north is falling, in the south it's actually these guys who are already back in business. Okay? Uh, fiscal and monetary policy. So that's my story. Uh, so here are some things I don't think it is. Um, Gordon, not George the Rescue. It's certainly not going to be Alan Johnson, for those of you who haven't seen the news in the last half hour, because he's resigned. Um, so uh, I, I don't think this is really an issue. His expenditure per head, which is often something that people put up and moan about London and how unfair it is, but providing public services in your most expensive city is, surprise, surprise, more expensive than providing it in places that are cheaper. So here is the, our expenditure on these things as a percentage of GVA. So there's two things going on here, right? But, you know, if you've got a general fiscal boost, it's not uh, what's explaining this, because London's had the smallest, uh, it's got the smallest uh, share of the sector. I, I tried to get something on whether the interest rates, I know people often have this thing about the interest rate policy hitting differently in different parts of the country, but I can tell you that that doesn't seem to occur through the housing sector. This is £20 billion less of mortgage payments, which I've tried to allocate out to the regions by looking at the amount of outstanding housing stock. Keep your eye on the big blue wedge in the northwest corner. Uh, you'll see that it's smaller than our share of GVA, the outstanding mortgage debt, right? So again, the you know, fine, we've got £20 billion that's come to us through uh, reductions in the interest rates that we pay on our mortgages, uh, but it's a smaller boost as a proportion of GVA than it would be elsewhere. Uh, this, I felt, was probably a terribly dangerous slide uh, to put up. Uh, uh, the rats doesn't refer to either immigrants or fat cats. Um, people often think of London as being a place where people work actually incredibly long hours. Uh, it, it turns out that this is largely a compositional effect, uh, not actually anything to, inherent to do with how hard we all work. And one thing that I have picked up on, although I'm not sure how much I really trust these numbers, is that hours worked seem to have dropped more in London than elsewhere. And of course, hours worked dropping uh, is actually just about enough to explain the 1.3% differential, our 2.6% fall relative to their 3.9% fall. Now, why I don't want to play up too much of this is because, uh, the, well, fine, that might help us on the employment side, but it certainly doesn't help us on the output side, and we know that output held up in London as well. Another uh, possible explanation for uh, what happened on the employment side is it was all illegal migrants who were going, um, now, you know, I tried to get some feeling on this. The employment in London, depending on whose measure you take, about four and a half million. The differential employee jobs, I mean, we're only talking about 60,000 jobs having been protected in London, because that's the difference between our changing employment rate and the change in the rest of the UK. Uh, that gives 60,000 things we're looking for. Now, if you did this amongst the irregulars, okay, so the illegal immigrants, there's, uh, this is a very precise number, I realise. 331,470 of those. Uh, how, how the hell I knew that. Uh, for something that's not recorded, I won't go into. Uh, now, uh, that means that 18% of them are gone. If their employment rate is anything like the rest of the population, that means that 30% of the illegal immigrants would have been fired. I just find this unreasonable. The other thing that we know is that it can't be the A8 immigrants because we're still actually seeing net migration in 
uh, from the Eastern European countries. So we're not seeing some mass exodus. What about the other end of the income spectrum, the very wealthy? Uh, well, they did take a hit early on, or uh, their wealth was the poor, poor things. Uh, the top 1,000 lost £155 billion pounds in wealth. But things are looking rosy. It's up again for them. Uh, I tried to look at their expenditure patterns, because I guess they don't necessarily their income might not be a very good guide. Uh, you'll be disappointed to know that fine wines and uh, beluga caviar were down 8%, uh, but they're now up 24.1%. Uh, there's been a 0.6% increase in the price of private jets, chauffeur service and exclusive housing in Saint-Tropez. Uh, offsetting this, there has been a 5.6% fall for goods and services related to the home, which for the super-rich means a full-time housekeeper, Westminster school fees, Botox and a rental house in Kensington, Chelsea. Um, talking of that last, uh, here is what's happened to uh, prices. Uh, this is courtesy of uh, John Wood. Uh, blue uh, is houses in the posh bits of London that no one in this room, uh, at least who's a student or a member of faculty, lives in, except possibly Tony. Um, uh, and red is flat, you see they took a pounding, but uh, this is 2011, this is the latest uh, figure for January, you see they're right back up. So, uh, there are some risks, uh, I won't go into them. I don't think public sector employment and civil service headcount is a disproportionate risk for London. Okay, from what I showed you about the fact that they're small employment shares. And from what we learned yesterday, uh, bon bankers' bonuses and future regulation is actually nowhere near as much of a risk as when I uh, put this slide up. So, to sum up uh, and get to some discussion, how did we get away with it? Uh, let me start by stating I think we did. Um, how? Well, a big part of the story is the fact that it's just simply not a middle class recession uh, and middle class is overrepresented in greater southeast uh, and the greater southeast middle class did better than elsewhere. Why did we get away with it? That's a much actually harder question than how. Uh, I think minor factors, public sector I think is a broader relevance, fiscal, monetary policy, non-DOMs, immigrants, all of these things I think are relatively unimportant. Major factors, the bailout played a role. Consolidation in the banking sector, I'm still uh, not convinced that all of those shifts in public sector, in financial services employment that we're seeing, are just to do with the bailout. I think when times are easy, uh, it's, easy to, it's easy to run banks away from the information, from the place which has most of the information about what's going on. And when times get hard, uh, information flows become very important uh, and uh, information flows are maximised in the place with the largest number of bankers they talk to. I think the wide and more flexible labour market could have something to do with it, although I should say that across countries that clearly hasn't uh, done much uh, to mitigate the impact of employment. A little bit cheeky this one, but work that I've done with Steve Gibbons at CERC says that it's not just the most educated in London, but it's the most able educated in London. That's a flattering to nearly everyone in the room, except for a few northerners who will uh, be able to take it up with me afterwards. Uh, and perhaps uh, they've done much, perhaps the most able have done much better. And let me finish on a, you know, on a, on a word of caution. You know, London got away with it on average, and really averages are not particularly informative. Uh, I think that for London's poor, things look pretty bad. I mean, things like the Olympics have not managed to prop up their uh, employment. We've seen employment falling at the bottom of the labour market, uh, and uh, they are just about to get hit uh, by uh, 
fairly large uh, benefit reforms. Now, I may be one of the only people in the room that think that these benefit reforms are actually needed, uh, but it's, I accept the fact that they are going to disproportionately uh, hit on the poor. So while uh, London got away with it, I think the future looks distinctly less rosy for some of its least advantaged citizens. Thank you. Okay, um, sorry for those of you around there who can't see us, I'll stand up when it comes to the questions, which will in a moment. We're now going to have five minutes of response. First, thank you, Henry. Uh, brilliant, excellent, interesting, fascinating combination. Thanks for the insults for, for us all. Uh, now, Hamish, Hamish from, who's the associate editor of The Independent, is going to go first, and Alexander from the Centre for Cities, and then... Uh, last but not least, Ian, they're going to speak for about five minutes each. Hamish. Well, thank you so much. I think it's terrific. And thank you for the comment, uh, Henry, about the fact that it wasn't uh, any London banks that actually went bust, not a single one, uh, unless you rang Lloyd's. And uh, that meeting between the chairman of Lloyd's and the then prime minister at Spencer House uh, at a cocktail party organised by Barclays, as a matter of fact, ranks as one of the most expensive cocktail party <laughs> chit-chats in human history. Um, I'd add two points to uh, Henry's conclusion. I think there are two other things which I, I, I would add, which seem to me to be very important. And by the way, I do believe, it, basically, we have gotten away with it. Um, one was the devaluation of sterling. We know that if you devalue a currency, service industries tend to respond more quickly than manufacturing industries. London is heavily services. And we've had this huge devaluation of sterling, 20%, which has had an immediate effect on one big London employer, which is tourism. Um, uh, it's also changed London in the global cost league, league as a place to do business. Saw some stats today showing that it was the second most expensive city three years ago to buy a property. Now it's number 14 or 15 or something like that. So big change, and that affects people. I was actually talking to someone who, a foreigner, who said he was going to found a hedge fund in London. I said, why on earth are you coming here? He said, look, we couldn't afford it three years ago. Rents were too high. We can now get in uh, and we can hire people good people cheaply uh, and we can make it work. So I think that is important and that by the way also has an asset effect. London houses may be up 1% or 5% in sterling terms. In euro terms, dollar terms, they're down 20-30%. So suddenly again that has brought money in because it's a good time to buy your uh, pad in Mayfair. The second thing that I think I would add is the position of the global market. This hasn't been a global recession at all. It's been a North American, North Atlantic, North American and European recession. No recession at all in India, no recession at all in China, uh, only a sort of slight blip of a recession, then a very fast recovery in, um, in Russia. Um, and this is measurably the most global place on earth. This particular place where we're sitting, the LSE, is the most measurably, the most global major institution on earth. In that there is a higher proportion of non-national students than any other institution on the earth. I think it's one of the wonderful things about this place. Um, but you could measure it in all sorts of other ways. Now, because global growth has continued, that has meant that 
money has continued to be invested in London. And I can give you one practical example. Uh, Russian money saved uh, a London newspaper, uh, which I happen to work for. But there so I think those are the two additions I'd make. I want now to look forward and talk about um, four positive things for the future, um, which have partly been covered, but I think I'd like to tease out some more, and one negative. Uh, you might say um, four weddings and a funeral. Um, wedding one is that though I think finance will change, I don't think it will necessarily get smaller. Those services will still be needed, and a fair amount of those services will still be needed in this time zone. Um, I think there will, in the long term, be a, a, a more a, a process of disintermediation, in the sense that banks will do less of the intermediation and securities markets will do for, reversing the trend since the 1960s, with banks gradually more and more of that process. I don't know who's going to choreograph it, but I think that will create employment in London. And that carries through another long tradition of London as a financial centre, which is the new markets tend to start here. When they become conventional, then they go off to somewhere else. So you have to keep running to create new markets and create new employment there. Um, wedding two is population growth. I don't know whether you've been seeing some of the stats that uh, uh, London will, uh, the UK will have a larger population than Germany in 2050. I'm sure that's good or bad news. Um, but most of these people, something like 2050, 72 million people here in the UK. If the present pattern remains, they will be crowded into the southeast, uh, and they will therefore be in the London commuter zone. Um, and you can look at either the Goldman Sachs estimates for uh, uh, the BRICS growth and the GD G7 growth, PwC have just done them, um, HSBC have just done them, and they all debate a bit about when will China pass the US. I think it's 2027 through to 2042, uh, you know, July or maybe August. Um, spurious precision doesn't just apply to the number of immigrants working in London. Uh, um, but... Uh, all these suggest that London and the South East will have less adverse demography than the rest of Europe. Um, wedding three, uh, this ain't just finance, point being made, diversified and flexible uh, economy with a huge global role. Education, this place, um, but also the rest of the South East, health, culture, communications, um, all these are sectors that are likely to grow over the next 30 years. Wedding four, I think this, this global rebalancing, which we are helter-skelter in the middle of, has only just begun. We're still in the early changes of this shift uh, to away from the G7 and towards the BRICS. And insofar as this has hugely benefited London as the most global place on Earth, measurably, you know, more people coming in and out of London airports, any other place on Earth. Uh, more international phone calls, any other place on earth. Insofar as that goes on, that benefits uh, London. And that then finally moves me to the funeral, which is the flip side of that final point. And, and I'm not so worried about us screwing up, driving foreigners away. What worries me most uh, is that should globalization reverse, and we should never assume it will continue, uh, London would be hugely damaged. Um, and that seems to be by far the biggest threat. 
the Cirques are utterly unpredictable. Um, I suppose it's, to quote another film, it's, you know, it's, it's round up the usual suspects. Uh, but my nightmare is that this is uh, 1910. Uh, and there's something, or well, 1911, sorry, there's something out there, three, four, something out there that we can't see that would actually wreck globalization. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Great. Well, the, the challenge of, uh, of coming after two such distinguished speakers is, um, and not comparing notes, certainly with, with Hamish, is that um, some of my best lines have, have gone before me. So what I want to do, though, is um, at the Centre for Cities, which is um, think tank, the only think tank uh, focusing on understanding and improving urban, urban economies. So we work with academics like Henry. We look at the whole of the UK and, and look at international issues. And what I want to do is just talk a bit about... Um, other cities as well and compare them to London because I think what you can see is in the last decade of, of boom it was very uneven so London and the South did a great deal better than the North to give you a statistic on this for every one new private sector job created in the North and the Midlands between 1998 and 2008 10 new private sector jobs were created in London and the South and there are reasons for that. So just as during the Industrial Revolution, what you saw was uh, cities growing massively. Uh, Liverpool uh, grew by 933% between about 1801 and 1920, because that's where the jobs were. That's what was booming. The industries that were booming were manufacturing. What you see now is actually many of those former industrial cities are struggling, because jobs and manufacturing have gone down. And it's the cities with high levels of skills, connectivity, with access to these highly skilled workers, to these much more knowledge-intensive industries, those are the ones doing well. And London and the South, as those trends have continued, so jobs and manufacturing have gone down, jobs and services have gone up, London and the South and the, the Greater South East has done very well out of that. So during the boom, it was uneven, and London did particularly well. It added far more private sector jobs than anywhere else. Even though it's got a big public sector, it's much less dependent. So during the boom that happened, during the recession... What we saw, despite the predictions that, that Henry put up there and, and we've all joined in with, is actually the recession just accelerated what was happening already. So some of the cities that struggled most during that economic boom, the ones that actually didn't add private sector jobs, they only added public sector jobs. Cities like Birmingham, for example, lost 60,000 private sector jobs during that period. It only grew because of the public sector. What the recession did was just accelerate some of those trends. So London has got um, a very diverse private sector. It's got a strong services sector. It's got strong skills. And all of those, as Henry said, have seen it do much better and be more resilient during the recession. So lower skilled cities hit a great deal harder. And this uneven economic, uh, well, economic boom, an economic recession, uh, is very likely to, to be reflected in the recovery. So will London continue to get away with it? Our assessment of the centre for cities is, is yes, probably. <coughs> because of all the factors that Henry started talking about. So it has got a very diverse public and private sector. It's got universities. Um, three of uh, London's universities are in the top 25 in the world. It's seen as the centre for creative industries, for advertising, for finance. So it, it's seen as a, a global centre. And that, diverse, that diversity of sectors is something that other cities don't have in the same way. It protects London. It's got far uh, more highly skilled workforce that absolutely protects London. Its scale, actually, has a big impact. So in um, a report we're publishing on Monday, 
we find that London, in absolute terms, is going to be hit hardest by cuts like the welfare bill, as Henry said. Because actually it's got the highest overall welfare bill, it's going to be cut the most. As a proportion of the overall economy, it's actually not going to make that much difference to London or make a great deal of difference to the people who receive the, that welfare, and I'll come on to that. But London's scale matters. It means that it can absorb some of these job losses in a quite different way to other places. So the fact that it's got high-skilled workers, it's got diverse sectors, it's big, and as Hamish said, it's global. So it is seen as a global centre. It can attract global talent. All of these things mean that, that London is much more likely to, to uh, continue to get away with it. So it did get away with it, relatively, it's likely to continue to do so. I think there are challenges ahead for London, though. I mean, in terms of its global position, um, what you can see is it slipped down some of the rankings. So it used to be seen as the best city from which to globalise. It's slipping down a bit now. New York and actually the East are becoming seen as, as really important places. So there are, there are threats to that. But I think um, a big challenge is the, the point that Henry made, the division within London. Because although welfare cuts won't affect London's economy as a whole, London is relatively insulated. It will be cities like uh, Liverpool and Sunderland that really feel that impact because they're much more reliant on the public sector. It's a bigger proportion of the economy. Welfare matters more. It will still hit those individuals. Low-skilled jobs will still be affected most. So the disparities within London will be a challenge. So London as a city, as an economy, will, in our view, continue to drive the economy. It's very well positioned. But people living in London, the differences between them are quite likely to widen. Um, as uh, the years go on. Thank you very much. And last but not least, Ian. Thank you very much. Right. Well, I knew that all the best lines would go, so I haven't prepared any. Um, I was very relieved from Henry's presentation to discover that in, in print I didn't seem to be nearly as pessimistic uh, about the London economy in the short run as I was in private and as I was in my head. Um, I share all the long-run optimism that, that Hamish and Alex have expressed about this, this economy, statistically at least, about growth in um, incomes and the scale of it. Uh, with one extra reservation, I mean, Hamish was talking about the threat to globalisation. Um, I think if this government's immigration policies are actually implemented in the way in which they promised to implement them, then I don't see London's population continuing to grow. It, you know, it's had a, to a much greater extent than people have been prepared to admit. Uh, the growth in London's population over the last 20 years has been a direct result of an upsurge in immigration. Uh, and if policies could actually be implemented in the way in which the government has talked about Im them implementing, those numbers wouldn't move in that direction any longer. But with, with that reservation, I'm, I'm, and that may or may not be a good or bad thing, but statistically it would make a difference. Um, I'm a long-run optimist. I'm a, I was a short-run pessimist, and I'm not quite sure whether I should still be a short-run pessimist. I'll come back to that. Uh, the, the question, I mean, did London get away with it? Uh, the thrust of Henry's presentation was that really this ought to be seen in terms of people rather than places. And I think that's generally true, and I'm rather resistant to generalizations about London, because I'm not sure that London as such really exists. It's an amalgam of different sectors and different groups of people, and it's what happens to them that really matters. 
Um, I'm not even sure about the middle class and whether the middle class have um, got away with this because it seems to me that actually the people who have got away with this are professionals uh, and precisely the kind of graduates that we try and turn out from here have done well. Managers have not done well out of this. And a lot of other people with white collars lower down the hierarchy have done, done really rather badly out of this recession. So it's, it's people-oriented, but it's very patchy in this respect. And it's not just the middle class against the rest, I think. Um, we haven't talked much about unemployment, um, and Henry did put up some figures about unemployment, which was showing that the South had come through um, more unscathed than the North in this respect. I just want to make one comment about that, which is that's what always happens, and the reason why that always happens uh, is essentially because a slack labour markets are inefficient labour markets, and people don't get to move and the unemployed who are generated by, in the long run, by slower growth in employment in the north, don't get to move south. Um, now this may not make much difference to people's welfare um, in the north versus south, but we're counting the unemployed in the north in the context of low mobility and low migration. Um, in good times we would count them in the south instead. So, but there is that difference, but I think it's not a very important one. What I wanted to say two things. One, one is against some of the thrust of what's been said. I mean, the, re the reason I was a short-run pessimist about London was, was partly that the origins of this recession lay precisely in one of our local industries, and in one of Wall Street's local industries. Uh, and if moral deserts had anything to do with it, it ought to have come home to roost, and you might have expected that some of the, the negative impacts would be felt locally. But beyond that, because that's the normal pattern in this modern London economy. So if we look back at the London economy, or if we look back at British regional economies for the last 25 years, uh, and the cyclical behaviour of them, <clears throat> we find that the places which are most volatile now are the places which are most successful. So dynamism is now associated with big swings up and down. And particularly in the case of London, you could, you could say that the, the price of the kind of dynamism that's been seen in London, especially in productivity terms, uh, has been two things. One has been much greater inequality than other parts of the country and that it previously experienced. And the other is much greater volatility. And the econometric findings, since Henry was resistant to produce any econometric findings, simple econometrics, uh, from a number of analyses of, of this that I've attempted, is that to expect that the swings in London should be about 70% bigger than the national average. Now the fact that that doesn't seem to have been true then is really quite a big anomaly in this respect. It's, it's anomaly compared with the early 90s recession, but it's anomaly compared with this norm. Why is it different? I, I would want to pin it down a little bit more in terms of time and say we've had three years since uh, the subprime crisis. The first of those years, the difference is that the London economy and the banks carried on expanding when manufacturing went down and industrial areas went down. And this period, before the technical recession started, a big disparity opened up between the two. The two years after that, heaven knows what's happened, frankly. Uh, and I'm not sure what my prejudice ought to be, um, whether I'm more interested in my pessimism coming true or I'm more interested in it ironically being turned on its head. Um, but the three data series that I know, which you can monitor this thing, all coming from the Office of National Statistics, one of them, the Labour Force Survey, says that London employment's carried on growing against 
more than the national trend or against a national trend. One of them, uh, the annual survey of hours and earnings, says that no London employment's gone down <coughs> about average for the country. Uh, and the third one, the workforce jobs series, says that London employment's gone down much more severely than the rest of the country. You pays your money and it takes your choice, but it's actually it's not a very good choice. And one of the side things I wanted to say was it's rather a disgrace uh, that national statistics cannot produce a set of indicators which allow us to say about the biggest city in the country, one of the biggest regions in the country, whether actually it has got away with it or not. Just one last thing about banks in relation to this and try to connect people and places. It seems as though the, the groups, the sectors and the places which were closest to the origin of this crisis have had least negative impact from it. And I think that's true within the, within the banks themselves. And the picture I get is that banks who had this big shock to their profits have been trying to recoup a lot of it, what hasn't come from the taxpayer, through cutting costs in places other than those which were responsible for the crisis to start with. So provincial banks, lower level jobs within banks, really seem to have been rather badly hit in, in this crisis. And that's an, an issue about managerial decision making, I think, as much as it is about simple economics. Okay. That's it. Right, we've got about 22 minutes uh, till 8 o'clock, so I want to open this out a bit. Um, by all means, feel free to challenge what Henry or the other commentators have said, or if you want to ask a specific question, do. Let's try and keep it short to get as much interaction as we can. I won't ask all, the, all Henry and the three commentators to respond to everything. Who'd like to kick off? Yep, front here. You say broadly who you are and where you come from, if you like. Uh, hello, I'm Anna Wishart. I'm a member of staff here at the Centre for Global Governance. Um, I had a question specifically related to the issue about globalisation and um, London's premier position. I was wondering what impact you thought that climate change might have on the ability of the international mobility and the ability of London to attract lots of foreign migration in the medium to long term. Okay. Um, now... Hamish, you raised. You ought to answer that. I have no idea. No, you, you, you raised it. Uh, I mean, is there anything? I mean, can I just check? Uh, are you? Is the question you're asking? Is there something about climate change that might limit travel, or is it a more complex question? Sorry, it could be both. Uh, about movement of people around the world as a result of climate change. Sorry, do you want to come and just, uh, unpack the question? I should have done that. Thank you. Yes, both. Um, both. So about travel and also about um, migration. Okay, flows. very good. It doesn't have to be you, Hamish. Henry, any of you want I, to? I, I, Hamish. I don't think I can give you a good answer um, because I haven't thought about it enough. Um, I, I sort of feel I can look 15 or 20 years ahead, but I can't really go beyond that. And I don't think that it will be so significant in the next 10 to 15 years as to start to work into the basic economy. Um, beyond that, um, I think that it goes into this whole question of is our environmental concerns one of the things that will bring to an end or cap or, or this burst of globalisation? And I think there we can't give a good answer. I think we just have to be very sensitive to the dangers. 
I will. I, I mean, I, I will say one thing, which I always uh, say whenever anyone asks me about climate change in England, which terribly upsets people. Which is that, uh, of course, one of the things we should really do if we care about climate change is all live closer together. Uh, not live spread out all over the country, and closer together means living in the southeast where most of us are. So, uh, <laughs> go on. Just, just, just one little tiny wrinkle on that uh, is that if London had the same density as Paris, uh, we could actually fit 38 million of us into into London. <laughs> it wouldn't be too bad, would it? <laughs> <laughs> Um, on a related point, um, one of the interesting things, and this is short term, um, around climate change is that with the Olympics, apparently some of the, the uh, biggest international interest in what we're doing in the Olympics is how we're making it a green Olympics. So there certainly seems to be some business opportunities short term within London because of the expertise generated by trying to deliver the Olympics, some of the supply chains, perhaps internationally. So short term there may be some impacts which may not be so good for climate change, but capitalising on the demand to deal with it. Yes. Okay, there were two questions towards the back there. Let's take them one at a time. Can you get them? That's right. My gentleman front and then behind. Gentleman standing up here. Here. And then behind. And then, okay. Robert Muriel, uh, the speakers have talked about the problem over good statistics. But the thing that hasn't come up today in relation to London, where the communities are, in spite of not being the same as Paris, tightly knitted, uh, to my mind, means there is a huge activity below the radar. And I would like to suggest that all these so-called poor people who apparently are going to have their welfare cut because they know, frankly, how to get the best, not necessarily needed, but because they know how to obtain it, are actually trading with each other very remarkably, and nobody figures that. And that, of course, keeps the place ticking very handsomely. Okay, irregular economy question. I'll take the one behind, pick up three questions one at a time here, and there's a gentleman over there actually waiting, and then you take four. Okay. Hi, Charles Levy from the Work Foundation. Um, I really found the analysis really fascinating, and I was wondering whether, while you've been sort of looking at these numbers, if London has got away from, with it, what, what are the sort of lessons that your analysis can teach policymakers, perhaps in northern cities? So in Liverpool and Sunderland you mentioned, are there any lessons from the analysis for things that they should be doing to make sure that their places can get away with it now? Okay, very good. Guy there, yep. Duncan Nish from the Institution of Civil Engineers and following on from the previous question, um, I wonder if you turn it around, the fact that London got away with it, is London's success almost directly at the expense of, or the Greater South East's success directly at the expense of the rest of the UK? Explain why that might be the case. I mean, I don't disagree with you, but what do you mean exactly by that? The UK is quite unusual in a kind of large Western economy, being so dominated by one city and one region. Um, and the, the difference between the economic performance of the Greater South East compared to the rest is quite striking. So you have a huge concentration of political, business, financial power here. Um, it's a huge influence on policy, so things like interest rates, um, political decision-making, and so on and so forth. Um, basically, does the Greater South East cast the rest of the country into shadow? Okay, fine. I understand what you mean. And one more there, and then we'll take some answers. Uh, Tristan, a uh, well, former NSE student. Uh, just to follow up on the previous question, I guess, is that, following up on that, is there any scope for, if you believe that the bailout of the bankers was at the expense of the rest of the country and benefited London, is there scope for some government policies 
Um, I know there was one mooted around where they were talking about cutting national insurance contributions for employers in the north relative to the south or increased stamp duty for houses in the south if you believe that the bailout has contributed to bankers' bonuses being propping up the property market, etc. So policy, are you, you're saying, uh, could you have policies more than what was actually a pretty small change to national insurance temporarily and for small businesses as I remember it. That, okay, okay, that's kind of going, so there's an element of the back to the future about the last two questions. Governments used to try very hard to shift economic activity north. It's related to the second one. Um, Henry. Uh, okay. Um, I, uh, I confess to not know enough about the irregular economy to be, uh, to be comfortable. I talking much about it. I am fairly certain that the poor in London are going to be worse off over the coming period, uh, and I think that that is something that uh, we should be worrying about. Uh, the lessons for other places, uh, <laughs> one cynical one is to make, make sure that the government hugely bails out your most important business. Uh, I suppose that's not a very uh, 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 lesson uh, open for replication. I, I think, again, it comes down to the fact that you do much better this is a medium, short, medium, long run thing. You do much better if your workforce is educated and skilled. And every time we come and look at these problems, the fundamental problem is to do with where the low skilled are living uh, and the fact that they are low skilled. Uh, so I, I just think it tells us that uh, you know, the, the more educated you are, uh, the more able you are to withstand shocks. Uh, and I, by the way, I'm a big believer in the fact that general education is fairly important here. Because one of the things we seem to be creeping towards doing is rather sector-specific things. And when your sector gets absolutely slaughtered, if you don't have general skills, it's very difficult for you to move around. Duncan, I mean, I don't like this question about London's success at the expense of the rest of the UK. I mean, I think what you need to ask yourselves is, are we better or worse off? You know, as a nation, with having things, you know, with the economic geography that we have got. Uh, and uh, you know there are plenty of benefits that come from having a very successful concentrated southeast. Uh, and uh, it's fine for the government to say we would like to spread these things out, but the question is then, would we be better off? You know, would people be better off if everything was spread out? And I think that's far from clear because London generates very, very good jobs. Uh, and wages for people that choose to move here and take advantage of that and <coughs> spreading it out uh, doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily going to benefit us. And the final thing I would say to uh, Tristan if I got it right well, you know, fine the bailout um, may have uh, benefited disproportionately London but London consistently year after year funds far more of the uh, fiscal expenditure in this country than any other region so uh, uh, you know, it's it's payback time, I guess. Um, so, you know, whether you, you know, I, I certainly don't think you should do it from a public sector point of view. Whether you want the banks to be charged for the uh, cost of it is a fundamentally different question. You certainly couldn't charge them for all the GDP loss that we've experienced if you wanted to lump all of that on them. But actually, over a 20-year period, lumping £100 billion on them would be uh, completely possible if you wanted to tax back the, the direct cost of the bailout. Okay, but, I mean, part, I mean, except Henry's answer, Hamish, go back to the question, do we think decisions are made in London and the Greater South East 
which is terribly self-conscious about itself, which accidentally disadvantaged the rest of the United Kingdom, i.e. decisions would be made differently if they weren't made here, which I think was an element of the question. I, I think um, had I been responding to that three years ago, four years ago, I, I would have said, um, look at Ireland, uh, which is the only large part of these islands with a separate uh, jurisdiction. Um, uh, Scotland, partially so, and Scotland, it was Ireland the model for Scotland. And I think you would have said that some of their policies were, because those decisions were made closer to the place, they actually benefited the Irish economy. Unfortunately, some of those decisions, because they were made closer to the place, hugely disadvantaged the Irish economy. So I think we give a slightly different answer to that. I think the thing that worries me, um, I think the really interesting issue is do you improve the relative position of the southeast and the north, or do you rebalance away from the southeast and the north by putting public money into projects in the north? Um, and you can argue it either way. Statistically, in the short term, you do, but of course, you increase late wage rates in the north, and actually, you price out private sector business outside of London because you're paying a national wage rate, and you may actually reduce the size of the private sector as a result. Uh, and I, I don't know the answer to this. I just know it's a hugely important argument that I'd just like to see much more, much more work on. Okay. Let's talk something on. Um, I suppose just a, just a point about kind of the, the lessons for, for northern cities, and I'd agree with Henry's point that actually high skills is, is one of the key challenges for them. I'd also say, though, um, there's an opportunity at the moment with what the government's trying to do to enable some of the cities, particularly the major cities, where actually um, you, you have got an opportunity to achieve uh, some of the economies that, that you get with scale. So some of those major cities, if they could raise some of the funds that they say would, and they can make a business case for, would make a real difference to business investment. So businesses say, we need investment in transport, we need some of the houses that will help get some of the highly skilled workers from elsewhere living here, we need to be able to get around better, and you need to invest. And we know that actually there's not much investment forthcoming. So I think there is an opportunity for northern cities to perhaps learn from London and the system, the mayoral system here, to get more autonomy to actually uh, raise funds, to invest in their own infrastructure and the particular challenges they have in their economy. That, I think, is an opportunity. That's a potential lesson. I don't think that would be about disadvantaging London. I think that's a short-sighted way to see it. Actually, many of these cities benefit from London. I think it was Boris Johnson who uh, was talking about um, Bombardier and, and com uh, companies in Derby benefiting from Crossrail because the contracts don't just go to firms in London. So I don't think that's the way to see it, but I do think giving some of those major cities outside London the chance to benefit from being able to invest in their own infrastructure, their own skills based, that would generate benefits. That's not to say everything should be devolved, but I think there is an opportunity there. And the government, of course, is offering them the chance of having mayors, if, if that may, might make a difference. Although perhaps not at the right level. Irregulars or anything else? Yes, irregulars. Can, can, but can I say something about cities again? Because it yeah. still doesn't make any sense to me to talk about cities as winning and losing. It's people <laughs> what wins and loses in, in, in these places. Um, and, and that's the, well, the In fairness to the audience, we didn't, we didn't say, how did a group of people get away no, with it? No, I, mean, no, 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 no. I accept <laughs> the blame for the title. <laughs> but but, but in, in relation to this, I think that's really important to, to understand. And I'm sorry. 
Um, and one of the ways in which London actually serves the interests of other parts of the country is the interests of people who are born elsewhere. And the opportunity to come to this city and progress occupationally is not something which seems to be confined to people who live in the southeast, but it's an opportunity available across the UK as a whole. Uh, and without the strength of the London economy, I think actually many people who are born elsewhere, and that would be my test, is... is what happens to people who are born in particular places, not what happens to abstract statistics for the, for the cities, um, that I think they would be worse. On the irregular economy, I mean, I've been struggling for the last 20 years to find any real evidence about this at all, but particularly any evidence that suggests there's a large irregular economy in London, uh, and I can't find it. I mean, I don't think there is a substantial irregular economy in this uh, certainly not of the stereotypical sort. I mean, I, as far as I can see, the majority of irregular migrants, even, don't work in an, in an irregular economy. They work in a regular economy. Uh, and things that we might think about as irregular in various respects often involve people who've also got jobs, rather than the, rather than the non-employed, and especially middle-class people who've got jobs. You know, so, the, so the irregular economy in, in London is not one which is actually in the shadows, and it's not one which actually solves the problem of poor people in this city. Okay, thanks. Now to get another short wave of questions. There's one here, one there, one there. Poor people up there. I mean, I haven't had any hands from up there, so this one first, yes. Is London more vulnerable to a significant slowdown in China or the failure of domestic policy to reignite growth here? I realise the two aren't completely independent, but as much as you could separate the two out, I'd be interested to know what you think. Okay. What was the next one? Because I've forgotten there. Then there was one over here. Yes. I, I had a question about uh, some of the data points that you were using regarding uh, London employment. Um, my question is specifically with regard to the financial services sector and to the public sector, both of which seem to have done uh, significantly better than anywhere else, but in absolute terms seem to have uh, grown. Uh, over the recession, and I find that um, rather surprising given my own uh, personal experience. And uh, perhaps I'd just make a comment um, regarding the um, speculation I might make is that uh, the growth in the public sector that I've observed here in London has been the FSA, which of course is regulating the banks. Apart from that, um, I'm not observing uh, anything uh, whatsoever. So I'm very interested if you have any okay. uh, detail on that. Very good. And gentlemen there. Thanks. Yeah, um, I was interested in the comment from Alex Jones that uh, the recession had just accelerated the trends underway anyway. And I wondered if there was a case for saying actually the exception to the rule that London has got away with uh, all recessions during the 20th century. It, it fared relatively well during the 1930s. From what I remember, in the late 70s, early 80s, it didn't fare that badly. The actual exception to the rule was the uh, 1990 recession, when, of course, interest rates were maintained at an artificially high level because, uh, because of the RM, and that had a particularly severe effect on the housing market. And London suffered accordingly, and the exception to the rule was not this recession, it was the 1990 recession uh, because, of, uh, because of higher interest rates. Okay, very good. Um, Hamish, China? Gosh, it's a fascinating question, and I, I uh, you know, it's, it's um, trying to write something about it, not very well today, in the paper tomorrow. Um, uh, really, to what extent were we vulnerable, the world vulnerable to uh, 
uh, to a decline in China. And I mean, I think that I think that the the good working assumption is that the long, the medium term secular growth of China, rise of China, is secure, and that therefore, though there may be a bump. Um, uh, it will not be for very long and very significant. Beyond 15 years, then, then bets are off. Now, if that's right, then London is not directly vulnerable to a slowdown in China. What it is more vulnerable to is a big punch-up between China and the US in which we, get, we catch the collateral, collateral damage. Um, and I could see trade restrictions, capital restrictions, actually damaging London um, really quite seriously. But I, I, I can't see this now or yet. And I can't quite see the circumstances where that would happen. Great, thank you. Now, data quality, Henry or and or Ian. Do you want to have a go at the data? You, you're, you're the data kings. Well, the, da um, the data quality is awful, but um, <laughs> but, but, in but in relation to the, to the facts you're talking about, I, I think it depends on the period you look at. So Henry is talking about 2007 to 2010. I was talking about that implicitly as well. 2007, 2008, financial services in London clearly did, did well. They did turn down. They've turned up again. So it depends on what period we look at, whether you get a positive outcome for this or a negative one. But over most of the period, period since the subprime crisis. Financial services in London have actually prospered. They did go down, but it was a relatively limited period within it. Public services, I mean, up to the last statistics we've got, have still been going up generally, uh, and certainly going up more in London. If you believe some of the figures, they've been going up explosively in London, in health and edu in education, but, but, but especially in health. I think some of those numbers are just wrong. Um, but there's no doubt that through the recession, public sector employment held up. It's just waiting to no. Go over the edge. Sorry. It'll be it'll be very different, absolutely. And Alex's report on, on Monday will talk about that. Can I just comment on one, on one other Alex thing in about London's vulnerability to international shocks? Because I mean, it seems to be one of the myths about London is is um, Hamish was saying rightly that it's the most globalised economy on earth. If we literally mean globalised, and we mean the extent to which it takes in other people's washing and doesn't simply represent British interests abroad, it's not actually very much more international than the average for the UK as a whole. Um, and certainly, industrial what we have still of industrial cities are much more heavily involved in exporting than uh, most activities in London are. And even though financial and business services in London has this global element within it, but it's primarily still serving markets in the UK economy as a whole. And what brings London down is fluctuations in the UK economy more than it is ones in the international economy in the, in the recent past. And I think, talking about the historical record in this, I mean, the historical record has changed. We are, have been in a new era since the beginning of the 1980s. Um, and this is an exception um, to the, the pattern of enormous volatility which London has experienced right through that period. Okay, I'm going to ask Alex to say a word about the accelerated trends point mm -hmm. and the 1990 recession, and then Henry to sum up briefly all we've heard. <laughs> I'm glad it's that way around, Henry. Um, um, on the kind of recession accelerated trends, what you can see is when, uh, when it, uh, the places that went into this recession, um, which were less well off, have done worse. 
So you can see it with that. If I recall, the GLA has put together some figures for London and the impact of recession on London. And um, as I recall, for both the 80s and the 90s, London entered recession and went down more steeply, but actually came out of it more quickly. So when you, when you look at it over the kind of longer term, what you can see is, and that was true in the 90s as well, went in more quickly, went down more, more steeply, but then came out more quickly. So London actually, because of these uh, underlying advantages, the high school workers, some of these global issues, the types of industry, actually it's, it's relatively insulated. And that's about those long-term trends I mentioned about long-term decline over the last 30 years of jobs in manufacturing, about the growing importance of high skills, um, about the growing importance of certain types of sectors, financial services being one. So I would agree the recessions are different and affected London in different ways. But if you look at those overall figures, um, I think in this recession, actually London, as Henry showed, didn't go down so much and, and came up more quickly. So this is the exception in some ways, and that may be to do with the bailout or some of the, the issues that Henry's mentioned. But overall, what you can see over the 80s, 90s, and this recession, I'd imagine, coming out of it, certainly the signs so far, is that that overall trend of cities that have um, more service-based economies, more high-skill economies, are doing better, the cities with uh, the people in them with lower levels of skills, with more industrial economies, do less well. That, that long-term trend seems to be uh, absolutely happening, and recessions seem to accelerate that rather than diverge from it. So that kind of prediction of middle-class recession this time around has been no more true this time than it, uh, it was in some of the previous recessions. Okay, and Henry, a few concluding thoughts, if you will. So I, I think... Uh, I would uh, let me conclude like this. Uh, did London uh, get away to it? Uh, get away with it? Uh, yes. Big asterisks. Subject to data limitations. <laughs> um, why did it get away with it? Uh, because the middle class stroke some other definition, some other catch-all phrase for people at the professional and upper end of the occupational distribution uh, got away with it. I take Hamish's point that uh, I didn't really say why that happened. Uh, and he's, uh, his candidate for that is the devaluation of sterling uh, and, and some other things about the uh, international economy. And I think uh, those points all well made. Um, the bailout helped, as did the Olympics. Uh, and I was tempted to give a prediction at the end, but I think that one thing that the lecture has demonstrated is that no one should make predictions about the future of London. Right. Well, uh, thank you all very much. Just by way of um, concluding uh, tonight's event, I mean, it seems to me that a big question that's been raised in the... If the not-quite prediction we've just not quite heard, but the general sense of optimism is correct. It does raise the question that has been come up from here and there in the audience, which is, <clears throat> what would it do to Britain's um, political and social and cultural economy if, if it continued to be the case for a long, long time that London and the Greater South East continued and continued to pull away from the rest of the United Kingdom? I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it is... It's sort of indirectly a question that's begged by some of what we've heard tonight. It's happened in recent years. It appears to have happened, possibly at least, data limitations aside, through the recession as well. Um, added to that, looking ahead, the, the government is in, embarking on an enormous range of reforms whose impact on the economy we don't yet know. Benefit reforms, creating new incentives 
for local authorities, public sector contraction that may have a very different effect from one part of the country to another, uh, and of course, uh, significant reforms to the way the public sector functions. So all of these things, I think, will give uh, enormous potential for a further recession, uh, further recession, further, no, sorry, a further um, event of this kind on this subject in the LSE Works series um, in the future. My final thought is on the question of predictions. This is, of course, an economic geography event tonight. Um, but, of course, political pundits often get things wrong as well. And I'm always reminded in the world of sort of predictions of a, my favourite of all. It would be a Monty Python's sketch for those of you of a certain age, which when the pundit on election night is asked what does he think about this election, the first result to come through says, this result was very much as I predicted, except that the other side won. <laughs> so it's not only economic geographers who get these things wrong. I'd like to thank Henry, Hamish, Alex, Ian. Thank you all for coming and for making this first event such a success.